Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. You're in New York right now, right? I am. Yeah, I'm getting ready to go to Italy tomorrow or Friday. And uh, so I'll be over there for a week or two. So I'm pumped about that. How goes all the book stuff? It's the book stuff is going great. I'm doing just like back to back to back podcast interviews that are being pre-recorded and some TV and some other stuff. Uh, so that's exciting. You know, it's I think I may have said this last week that it's exciting when people say nice things about the book because that helps get people to buy the book, which helps with the cause. But it's also just, you know, only like a couple hundred people or whatever have read this book so far, you know? And so every time I get a reaction, whether it's from somebody with a million followers or somebody with 10 or a friend of mine, like you or like Grace, it's exciting because, you know, I worked on this thing for eight months and it's nice when someone's like, yes, I, I like it. Or, I mean, and some people are like, it's made me rethink everything and, you know, or it's changed my life. And so obviously that's super gratifying. Uh, the most recent happening and this is just part of living in Kansas City, is there was a tornado uh, warning in the middle of the night, which oh man, it's always scary when they happen in the middle of the night because you don't know who's going to wake up or anything. So like at 1.30 in the morning last night, my phone and Diana's phone, start, even though they're on silent, you know, the, the breakthrough alarm comes in and it's like making this huge loud noise, wakes us up. And then, which basically means uh, like that tends to happen just maybe a minute or two before the sirens go off. So it's like, it just means you're in an area where you're in the path possibly. So then we just sort of, without even talking, run up the stairs. She grabs the baby. I grab true. And which is to say, I jostle true, wake him up. And the poor kid, <laughs> you know, like that's scary. For, I mean, he's like, wait, what? And so we go to the basement and he's just like, we're okay. And we're like, yeah, you know, we're going to be fine. But meanwhile, like the report was it's right in your area. And then the baby, of course, she's asleep on Dinah's shoulder for most of it. And then like 30 minutes into us being in the basement, she wakes up, looks around and just goes, hi, <laughs> which is adorable. <laughs> and then, you know, you get the all clear and, and then you've got this adrenaline rush. And for an hour, you lay there trying to go back to sleep. Did Diana start doing some pull-ups in the basement while you were waiting? <laughs> I think if she hadn't had the baby clung to her, certainly uh, that would have happened. Yeah. Uh, well, I have a question for you about the book stuff. Which is, do you now, like, is the cadence of all the book stuff giving you a little bit of that sort of adrenaline rush of campaigning again? Are you like, all right, like, I'm kind of out there, I'm selling this thing to the public, I'm taking all these interviews and stuff like that? Or does it feel totally different? Um, there's a little bit of that. It feels totally different because as, and you know, because I wrote about it in the book and we've talked about it, like, 
my need for that has changed. Like I don't have that need the way I did before. So it's familiar in that way, but it's much better in the way that like, I look forward to doing the interviews and talking about it, but I'm not like, I need it. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but what's interesting, what I think it's, it's more that just having an ongoing project. So like, you know, writing the book was an ongoing project and that was, you know, it's always, as you know, like it's always fun to have an ongoing thing that just you're working on. And then uh, now selling the book is an ongoing thing that's going to last for several weeks, possibly months, but at a real serious clip for several weeks. And it's like, it's always can be fun, can be stressful, but can also be fun to have a measurable project where you know how you're doing. Uh, Yeah. And so that's that's great. That's gratifying. Yeah. I have no doubt it's going to be a hit. Um, Thanks, man. And so- so uh, maybe we'll just do this on the front end for listeners because I know we usually do it on the back end. What's the uh, what's the call to action here for people who haven't bought it yet? What should they do? Uh, thank you. Um, so the book comes out July 5th, but uh, and I've mentioned this before, you don't have to wait to July 5th to read it. If you pre-order it and you go to jasoncander.com slash launch team, then there's a way for you to get a digital copy ahead of time. You'll still get on July 5th the book that you pre-ordered, but you can read it ahead of time. And so I encourage people to go to jasoncanter.com slash launch team. And if you need an extra thing to put you over the top, all of my proceeds, all of my royalties from the book go to combat veteran suicide and veteran homelessness at Veterans Community Project. So nice. with that said, we should talk about news of the week. Yes. I, there's a lot happening. I think it, the best place to start is January 6th. There's a bunch of activity going on in and around January 6th related news, the most important of which is that the January 6th committee is set to begin their public case. So tomorrow night, which will be Thursday, the night that this episode is airing, I think at prime time, members of the January 6th committee are, are doing their first public hearing. And I think this is obviously notable. This is important. I think a question I have and a bunch of listeners have is, how is this significant for the purpose of this podcast, like people trying to convince other people in their lives to believe what they believe and either be more progressive or be more skeptical of Trump and his movement, et cetera. Like, how should people be talking about this? Yeah, I think this is one of the hardest questions right now because this is, and we've been struggling with this for months. Well, we've been struggling with this for over a year. We've been struggling with this since January 6th of, of 2021 because it is something that is this horrible thing that happened in the history of of our country and it deserves proper attention but now we're looking down the barrel of a midterm election where there's inflation where there's uh you know all these other concerns and you're worried like if you take your eye off the ball politically and talk about something that people don't feel is affecting them in their daily lives are you worsening the problem of you know these folks gaining more power and i don't know the answer to it you know i, I see like never Trumper commentators, you know, Republicans who are like on one end, they're like, this is the most important thing. And then others who are like, actually, the most important thing right now is that my old party not get more power. And this is not going to get it done. Like I saw um, former Congressman Joe Walsh saying that. So I, I really don't know. I think it's, it's really an ethical dilemma more than a political dilemma. Yeah, I, I, I find no alternative but to talk about it, because I think it is, to me, it's the, it's my biggest issue personally. It's what motivates me personally the most. And so I guess in the interest of not pretending 
that something else is motivating me more. It's just from an authenticity point of view. Like it's it's what I'm most worried about in our country right now. And I and I worry about, to be clear, a lot of things. But this is the sort of gateway to all other things. Like if you care about, you know, abortion rights or you care about you know, doing something sensible on gun control or climate change, et cetera, it all moves through our democracy. And if our democracy is in trouble, which it is, and it's under even graver threat, I think, in the future, then to me, this is what I think about more than anything else. And the signs are just so obvious and terrible. If you look at, you know, what's happening in these primaries across the country in the Republican Party, there's just one lunatic after another getting elected or at least getting nominated for very serious offices at a time when our party's political standing is as low as it's been in my recent memory is a really dangerous dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, it's probably in the category for me of stuff that where it is of the most importance to me. And it's so upsetting that I'm probably in some sort of, to use like a psych term, like some sort of avoidance territory a little bit on it, right? Yeah. Because I have no doubt that the revelations are going to be possibly not entirely surprising, but definitely upsetting. And so that that is what it is. But I, I think I guess the way to think about it is it's it's the measuring stick you use, right? If the measuring stick you use for whether something should be talked about from a political perspective, if that measuring stick is the next election, well, then it's likely that the January 6th hearings are probably not going to be the most important thing to talk about. But if the measuring stick you use is one that we use on this show a lot, that I think a lot of others may not use, which is winning the overall argument and trying to get people to our side and to see the danger of this authoritarianism on the right, well, then I think it's pretty darned important from that yeah. perspective in that in that long game. Well, it, you know, you, you wonder what revelation would move anybody who hasn't been moved yet. You know, for example, on June 3rd, the New York Times broke that Mike Pence's chief of staff on January 5th had alerted Pence's lead Secret Service agent that Trump was going to turn on him publicly, meaning turn on Pence, and that there was this elevated security risk to Pence from the president of the United States. I mean, it's fucking amazing. Honestly, like what else is going to move people on this? It's incredible what can feel normal and expected. Because even I, I mean, that is I can only see that as incredible when I step back from the situation and take it in full context of just simply the president turned on the vice president and tried to direct violence against him. That I understand. But when you place it in the context of Donald Trump did literally anything, then it doesn't feel like a revelation. And that that's what, frankly, we've been struggling with now for six years. Yeah, I had a particularly frustrating conversation with my father, who, if you're a new listener, you should know is very pro-Trump, the other day. And I was basically like laying out this case to him, you know, totally unpersuadable person, but I just couldn't help myself because he was just lecturing me about all this stuff. And what I found interesting was like, he wasn't even saying that he thought the election was stolen. He was saying that enough people believe it that we should take it seriously. It was like this elliptical argument. And I just like stopped him at a certain point. And I was like, you know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. And I was like, at some point, this is going to be a hot war if you guys keep doing what you're doing. And I actually told him, I was like, you should go watch a little Ken Burns about these families that were torn apart by this because you and I are going to be on this side of this, buddy. You know, Uh, and he 
he, he kind of like perked up over that and he was like, like, you guys are threatening violence. I'm like, I'm not threatening violence. I'm saying you guys are literally being violent and I'm just telling you I'm not going to stand for it and that we're on different sides of that. And it was just like an eerie conversation. It was like a legitimate family discussion about a civil war that is like has some basis in reality, you know? It's, I mean, no joke, man. Like, I don't think there have been a lot of civil wars where people were like, oh, yeah, saw this coming a long time ago, right? It's, I mean, that's the old expression, right? Which is that war is uh, politics by other means. It's, it's, it just slides to that point. And, you know, January 6th, that was violence. That was political violence. And God, we're really going to be bumming people out this week. But it it is a, a scenario worth being concerned about. And the you know the thing your dad said that a lot of Republicans like to say about well you know a lot of people believe this. So that has been something that has frustrated me about the political debate in this country since I entered politics, which is that the right wing attitude toward the market of ideas, the marketplace of ideas is so identical to the right wing attitude toward the market that it's very frustrating because that attitude is, well, if the market bears it, then it is therefore justified, right? It doesn't matter whether there was any impropriety in the election. What matters is, do people seem to think that? Well, if they do, that's all that matters in the same way that it doesn't matter whether a product is safe. Do people buy the product? Well, then there's no nothing else to talk about, right? So we're seeing that with guns right now. Like children are being killed. It's the leading cause of 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 death now in the country uh, among kids. But that doesn't matter because people are still buying guns. The marketplace bears it out. The market can make no mistakes, and that is not a that is not a way to run a democracy. Yeah, and their argument isn't even the majority of the market needs to believe something or do right. something for it to be legitimate. Like on most of these issues, they're in the political minority, but they're you could track this in any one of these candidates, it's Josh Hawley, J.D. Vance, Trump. They're being more and more explicit about the fact that they don't really believe in this democracy anymore and maybe never did. And that's why I think to bring it back, I do think this messaging, you know, it, with all due respect to Joe Walsh, like I do think we have to put our core democracy issues central to our political argument because the other side is counter messaging this in plain sight and basically saying to use that sort of flight 93 analogy i think i've talked about before on this podcast from michael anton where he's like we're metaphorically he's talking to the right i think this was before the 2016 election he was saying we're metaphorically on flight 93 and we need to storm the cockpit and take it back essentially and the plane kind of being the democracy this country so basically saying take it back by force and to me that's a very it's a popular and growing idea on the right that they are saying in plain sight to people being like, look, you don't want your kid coming home and like being, well, I don't know what their arguments are, gender fluid or feeling guilty about being white or whatever the hell like their argument is. And you don't want your city to become San Francisco or whatever. So, you know, we've tried politics by normal means. Now we need to use other tactics or whatever. This is basically what they're saying in plain sight. And I think for us to to cede that ground to them or just let them make those arguments unchecked, I think would be really dangerous. And, and to me, I think we have to continue to internationalize this so that people under, we have to continue to place it in context for people. Like if we are going to go out and we are going to uh, make what happened on January 6th and what is happening in our democracy, a core part of our argument, it can't just be 
well, Republicans want this and Democrats want this because that puts people into their camps. We have to place it in the context, and I've said this before, of there's a sweeping wave of authoritarianism across planet Earth and America has to decide. It can't be, are Republicans going to do this or are Democrats going to do this? It has to be, what is America going to do? You know, and, and by the way, it's not just on this. Like, There's lots of issues like that. Like, If you look at where, I mean, gas prices, if you look at where gas prices are right now in the United States, obviously they're exorbitantly high. It's a huge problem. And if you look at where we are across the world, you can see, oh, gas prices are high across the world. And, and it, it definitely behooves us as liberals, but also like as a country to just be in the proper context and understand we're not conducting things in a vacuum here. We're part of a larger world and we have to choose our, our direction in that world. Right. They have like this superseding argument, right? Like what they say is, look, you may not be with me on abortion. You may not be with me on guns, but there's this wokeism that's sweeping the country. And they basically couch everything in those terms to say, like, no matter what you believe on all the issues, you are with us on this cultural point. And I think we need our equivalent to say, look, like we, you may not be with me on a bunch of stuff, but like there's this threat from the other side and or a affirmative vision for this country that we're selling. Because I think this sort of micropoliticking is not working to our advantage right now. You know, it's interesting. This brings up a point that uh, you and I weren't planning to talk about, but I'm on this text chain with a couple of people and uh, we were going back and forth this week about the word woke and how the Republicans have weaponized the word woke, which was a word that started as a liberal word. It didn't start. It started as a, a word denoting uh, a virtue and they've weaponized it and made it toxic uh, in a lot of ways. And we were trying to figure out what is the what is the counterpart? What is the equivalent to that? And it, it started with somebody shared on the chain the article about DeSantis punishing the Special Olympics for having, I think, a vaccine requirement and making it where it was going to cost the Special Olympics in Florida like a ton of money, literally punishing the Special Olympics. And we were trying to figure out what is the word that you throw back at them. And like we talked about, is it MAGA? Because you know that seems to be part of the approach now is like, let's separate MAGA from Trump so that we can talk about MAGA without giving people the opportunity to distance themselves from Trump and you know make that the moniker but then one of the guys on the chain who has access to a lot of polling was saying you know actually that's not showing up that well as being very effective we talked about is it is it weakness is it defensiveness like you know cuz it's you're pretty thin skinned if you're like oh yeah. you're you have a vaccine requirement i'm canceling out all your money or cuz the other thing DeSantis did was the was vetoing the money for uh, i think a stadium yeah it's for a, the race because, yeah, because they tweeted some stuff about gun violence. Never mind what he did with Disney. Right. Uh, over the don't say gay stuff. So he's he's what Jared Polis, you know, future guest on this podcast, calls a authoritarian socialist or authoritarian right wing socialist or something like that, which obviously is too many words for our little sloganeering workshop well, here. But And also, yeah. like, the, the other part when we can talk with Jared about that when he comes on, but the other, the governor about that when he comes on is – you don't want to take a word that is usually associated with us yes. and and say, well, that's a negative, right? So like, right. So, you know, I, I actually would encourage people to write in or to call in with their ideas of what is the sort of opposite of the negative spin on wokeism, right? Like right. not, not the opposite of wokeism, but what is, 
what is the word that it can be a moniker for when these guys are just like being so small and so petty and trying to make things about culture and, you know, and try and misdirect and, and just be mean, like this petty, mean cruelness. But what, what is that moniker that we should be using? Yeah. Good challenge to the audience. Please send in your voicemails on that and we'll spend some time on that. But there's, you know, you remind me of the fact that like you think about the 90s, right? When we were kicking the Republicans asses in the national messaging in certain ways to the point where George W. Bush, in order to win, had to attach the word compassionate to conservatism because it became clear that they were mean. And it was also the sense that Republicans were uncool for all the problems people likely have with Bill Clinton. He was a cooler person than George H.W. Bush. And like he's playing the saxophone on Arsenio or whatever. And like there was this sense that the Republicans were stodgy, you know, bow tie wearing, nerdy penny pinchers and that Democrats were the children of the 60s. And we have somehow gotten our into the point where we're the uncool people and somehow the Republicans are claiming comedians and actors and ultimate fighters and athletes and like, you know, and I don't know what we are right now, you know, uh, mm-hmm. but I think that's part of the, the challenge right now is like, like, who are we even culturally? Because we're such an amalgamation of so many different forces right now. Yeah, they're like, they're grunge is what they yeah. are, right? Or they're like Napster. I mean, like, you know, like. Well, no, you, you're, you're on to something because what, where, where do they do best right now? They do best, I think. They've made most up, made up, made up most of their ground with Gen X. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that's true. So they they really are the grunge people who now live in the suburbs <laughs> and are using that ethos, right. you know. So if you've been listening to this show for a while, you've probably heard us talk about our Helix mattresses. But Helix has left the bedroom and they've started making sofas. And they just launched a new sofa company called Allform. And I can't say enough about it. Yeah, the uh, one, I've talked about it before, the one sort of off the edge of our kitchen is so popular that the other day, Diana had had laid down and was working on the, this little sofa that we got from Allform, and then the dog jumped up and the dog was draped over her knees, and then the baby came up, so then Diana's got her laptop there, and then the baby on, on her chest, like sitting there trying to reach across to the dog, and then True walked up and he came up and he found the one little tiny bit of space just under Diana's head and like put his his feet there. It's not that big of a sofa, but everybody wanted to be on it. You know, one thing I love about this, these all form chairs and sofas, Jason, is you can pick out your color, the fabric, you can make it match whatever you have going on, whatever your motif is. So to find your perfect sofa, check out allform.com slash majority54. And Allform is offering 20% off all orders for our listeners at allform.com slash majority54. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. One of the things I think people are struggling with a lot right now, particularly like younger parents as their kids are out of school, but it's not like their job is slowed down, is is burnout. How do you manage that game of keeping your kids off a screen, but still be able to do your job? It's really easy to feel burnt out right now. And life can be overwhelming anyway. Many people are burned out. They don't even know it. There's people listening to my words right now and they don't, and they're going, Ooh, am I feeling burned out? Well, if you're asking that question, you know, maybe better help online therapy, uh, is your solution. Better help online therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what is actually causing stress in your life. 
BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off the first month at betterhelp.com slash m54. That's betterhelp.com slash m54. One other thing to mention here is Fox News will not be carrying the January 6th hearings or the case live. Uh, Jason, how surprised are you by that revelation? Uh, I'm not surprised because, look, they put it in prime time, and which is smart, I think. They're like, we're going to do this in prime time. And I think a lot of people will watch, but they're going, okay, well, our prime time is Tucker Carlson, it's Sean Hannity. And I think it's two things. I think it's one, a calculation of, we're not going to put on prime time on our network a broadcasting of culpability and involvement by a bunch of people from our network, including Sean Hannity, for one. So I'm not surprised by that. I'm not endorsing that as in, in any way, but I'm not surprised by it. But also, I have to imagine that they're going, okay, this is going to be wall-to-wall covered, but it's not what our audience wants. So why don't we just give our audience what our audience wants so that we hold our audience? Uh, and I think you know, and then they're saying, well, we're going to put on Fox business, which has like the same following as this podcast. So, and if we were to, if, yeah. we, if we were to broadcast it live, I don't think it would exactly, I think we have a great audience, but I don't think it would move the needle. I would say, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's, it's a, it's a, it's what I would call the perfect mullet. It's business in the front and the Republican party in the back. It's like equal parts, partisanship and business. Yeah. So well, all right, all right, all right, Jason. Let's start with the gun debate. And I don't know about you, but I was I was dying to know what Matthew McConaughey thought about this. And I'm glad he went to the White House yesterday and, and clarified this for us. Uh, but in all seriousness, like he has a personal connection to this tragedy. And I thought he said some really interesting stuff yesterday. So let's roll the clip. We want secure and safe schools and we want gun laws that won't make it so easy for the bad guys to get these damn guns. We need to invest in mental health care. We need safer schools. We need to restrain sensationalized media coverage. We need to restore our family values. We need to restore our American values. And we need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership. We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle. To 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them. These regulations are not a step back. They're a step forward for a civil society and, and the Second Amendment. And look, as, as, as divided as our country is, this gun responsibility issue is one that we agree on more than we don't. It really is. Look, this should be a nonpartisan issue. This should not be a partisan issue. There is not a Democratic or Republican value in one single act of these shooters. It's not. But people in power have failed to act. So we're asking you, and I'm asking you, will you please ask yourselves, can both sides rise above? Okay, so let's start with the criticism of this. 
there's some from the right and there's some from the left. The criticism from the right is exactly what you'd expect, which is uh, incredibly, I mean, I think right away on Fox News, they're like, okay, so somebody from Hollywood telling people, and it's like, no, he's literally from Uvalde, Texas. So that's frustrating, but we know that's going to be their response. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. My thought on that is, it's not that people are like, oh, well, if Matthew McConaughey thinks this, it's it means this to me. I think it's more like more people will see it as a result. And also, look, the January 6th hearings are about to start. I mean, the fact that, that guns have remained in the news cycle this long, even after something as horrific as what happened in Texas and, and since, it's actually sadly an outlier that it has stayed in the news this long. And you have to keep it in the debate if you're going to get anything done. So that, I mean, that's my thing on, on that criticism. The criticism to me, it's like, it's not going to stick to him in the way it does others. And, and honestly, it's irrelevant. Like, it's like, let, let's pretend like somehow they delegitimize Matthew McConaughey. Like, it wasn't like he, we were counting on him for anything else anyway. So it's mm-hmm. like good that he puts himself out there. And yeah. I do think it's harder. He's from that town. He he definitely doesn't sound like a traditional Hollywood person. And I would imagine his approval, approval ratings amongst the general public are pretty high. So I'm not too worried about that front. What are the left-wing criticisms of this? Because I could gather what they are just based on what I heard. But what have you seen from Yeah, I mean, people feel like he's using a lot of both-sidesism language. He's using a lot of language about we need to rise above. And and I react that way to it too. But what I'm trying to figure out is we know that his remarks, I'm sure, were at least uh, advised from the team at the White House. So it's not just him, right? That people are feeling like we've got to talk about it this way. And it can be, I, it's very frustrating to listen to. I, I don't think that makes it wrong, but it's frustrating to listen to for me who understands that pretty much a hundred percent of the opposition to doing something is Republican. And so it can be very frustrating for me to feel like, uh, let's just throw up our hands and say, this is a Washington thing, because I feel like that absolves responsibility and it makes action less likely. But I want to leave open the possibility that there is a a reason uh, for that strategy. Yeah, totally. I, I had the same reaction. And there was also this line about sensationalized media coverage, which I'd want to know more about what he means by that. Like, like how should we cover our very unique American experience with both mass shootings and everyday shootings? Like, I don't think it's sensationalized enough. You know, to me, this is like a, a national crisis, you know, and it's not accidental as we've covered in previous weeks. Like we have you know, more than double the amount of guns per people than the next uh, contender, which is Yemen, which is the last time I checked in the middle of a civil war. So that's amazing. And that probably has something to do with the fact that we have a unique problem with gun deaths of all kinds, including these mass murders. So like, I don't think the coverage is sensationalized. Sure, there's probably like, there's probably a phenomenon of bad news getting coverage generally in this country, like in ways that are disproportionate to potentially good news. But Certainly doesn't seem like gun stuff is getting, you know, some outsized piece of the pie here, you know? Well, and, you know, I, I do think that he did a, a very good job of, and I'm sure it was very difficult for him and his wife to go have those conversations and meet with the parents. I mean, that sounds, that sounds very emotionally, uh, like a very difficult thing to do and, and to do that in order to be able to take those stories and, and tell those stories. You know, he he brought the little girl's shoes and talked about how they were the only way that she could be identified. Maite wanted to be a marine biologist. She was already in contact with Corpus Christi University of A&M for her future college enrollment. Maite wore 
green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Wore these every day. Green converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. I think that that is important to your point, not sensationalized enough. Well, I think what you really mean is not humanized enough, right? Yeah. Like, like yeah. people, people need to feel it. And I think that that is, is really positive. And to go back to the, the whole, like, why do we need Hollywood messengers? You know, there's this old study. I don't know how old it is, but several years ago, and I may have mentioned it before, but I think about it a lot where researchers of apes in the wild were showing pictures to apes and they would show them pictures that were taken of like rank and file apes in the pack. And then they would show them pictures of the pack leaders and all the apes would spend much longer looking at the pictures of the pack leaders. And so look, that's why people like Matthew McConaughey are asked to be messengers in situations like this, because there are people who have chosen emotionally or from a partisan or ideological perspective to avoid the news over the last few weeks. And you want to make it really difficult for people to avoid that. I've heard a lot of stuff about the gun debate. I haven't watched all of it right over the last few weeks. But when I found out that Matthew McConaughey was in the press briefing room, I watched the clip, you know, because I'm well, that's interesting. That's something I wouldn't expect to see. So there's a reason for doing that. Well, and and let's transition to a little bit of the substance of what he talked about in terms of policy proposals. I, I generally agree with what he laid out in terms of what we need to do. And there's a big debate happening uh, at the federal level about what to do. You know, Chris Murphy, Senator Murphy from Connecticut, has been leading the negotiations on the Democratic side. And he recently did an interview where he laid out what is on the table and what's not on the table. He said what was not on the table is an assault weapons ban or comprehensive background checks. He did say that a red flag law seems to be on the table and improving the system for background checks is on the table. I'm not exactly sure like where he sort of draws the line between comprehensive background checks and improving the system. So that's, he says he's very hopeful that something's going to get done. I continue to have the questions that I asked last week around, you know, is, is something super piecemeal even helpful at this point, which we'll come back to. But then there's another proposal on the table from my friend Don Beyer, representative from Virginia, who wants to do a 1,000% excise tax on semi-automatic firearms. And that would that would not require a single Republican vote if all Democrats voted for it, because you could do that in reconciliation, because that is a tax proposal, revenue generator. When you look at all of this, what do you what do you think about this this sort of series of packages and do you think anything's going to get done? Well, I think that it is a good thing that Chris Murphy is beginning with managing expectations, right? I think it's important. If one if you're going to get anything done, you've got to focus on what you can actually get done, which look, the window for that in this Congress is narrow, right? In the Senate is narrow. And two, you want to make sure that if you do get it done, that the movement feels some sort of momentum from it as opposed to a letdown as a result. And so I, I, I credit him. I mean, I know him well enough to know that he, and you don't even need to know him. I, everybody knows how deeply passionate he is on this issue, but I can tell you that he's that way in private too. And I don't think it's easy for him to manage his expectations and to, and to sit at that table and accept the fact that 
stuff that obviously needs to happen isn't even on the table. So I, I think that, you know, I credit him for that. I mean, that's him doing the job that he's supposed to do. As for the proposal for taxing, I think it is, I think it's it's not just semi-automatic. I think it's basically assault weapons, right? Because semi-automatic would include a lot of stuff. And what we're talking about here really is AR-15s and basically weapons that are like AR-15s or, or that would come along and be like AR-15s. That's what we're talking about going after. And I wanted to spend a little time on this because this is a debate that's happening right now. And there are lots of people, particularly where I live, who, when this comes up, people want, and I mentioned this last week, I think, that you know it's important for people to educate themselves about these weapons so that you can have these conversations. Because people who are educated and don't agree with us, they want to run circles around you, right? They want to they talk to you the way like, you know, your IT person might talk to you knowing that you're just going to have to nod your head because you don't know what they're saying, right? And so I wanted to break this down for people because here's the argument that I'm sure people all over the country, a lot of our listeners are hearing, which is some version of, well, you know, the AR-15 is not actually a military weapon. That's not true. So I want to break that down for people. So the AR-15 was originally designed for the military as a, a smaller replacement for four different rifles four different military rifles, right? That was the idea that originally that's what the AR-15 was going to be for. And it was a tactical answer to the AK-47, which people, you know, I think have at least heard of because it has for a long time been and still is the preferred rifle of of our enemies, right? Whether it was the Soviets, whether it was uh, the Taliban. I mean, the AK-47 is the rifle that has been most fired over the the last few decades at American military personnel. And nobody argues that an AK-47 is anything other than an assault weapon, right? And so then what people say is they say, yeah, okay, that's the the AR-15 was designed for that, but that's not what's used. They say an M-16 or an M-4, that's what is actually used, right? And then you're thinking, but they look exactly the same to me. How is it that they're different? And let me explain. Everything about assembling and maintaining the AR-15 is the same as the M-16. I was trained on the M-16 and the M-4 which are the exact same weapon. The only difference is, is one of them on either end is a little shorter. Which but, one, by the way, was the one that you did in your ad, that you assembled in your ad? So in my ad, I assembled an AR-15, but an AR-15 that was the size of an M4. And it's basically the exact same weapon. I mean, it is the exact same weapon. Like, I didn't learn how to assemble an AR-15. I learned how to assemble an M4 or an M16, but it's the same as an AR-15, Right. And the reason I can do that is because the parts are exactly the same. The only noticeable difference between the M16 or M4 and the AR-15 is the select fire feature, which means you can flip from semi-automatic. There's a little dial on the side. You can flip from semi-automatic, which is boom, 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 to three-round burst, which is boom, 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 or full auto, boom, 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 right? The AR-15 doesn't have three-round burst. It doesn't have full auto. It has semi-automatic. But that doesn't cease to make it an assault weapon. We were trained that you would almost never employ burst or fully automatic because they're an inefficient waste of ammunition. Like that's what army marksmanship instructors teach. Burst or auto are useful if you're laying down suppressive fire, which just means if you're trying to force a bunch of bad guys on the other side to keep their head down so that another element of your team can move toward them. Now, that other element of your team has their weapons on semi-auto, and you know what that element is called? They're called the assault element, right? That's what it is. The 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 M16 or M4 on semi-automatic is used by the assaulting element under U.S. Army doctrine 
to assault the objective, right? So, I mean, that's what it is. And and the other times, like there were other times when we were taught we might potentially use it, which would be like if you're if you're clearing a bunker or there's certain room clearing techniques, but it's extremely rare. So 95% of the time, in my experience, army marksmanship instructors would consider firing on either of the two options that the Air 15 doesn't have as poor ammo discipline and they and you would you would get in trouble for doing it. Um so there's no real distinction and it was designed for the military to take on the AK47 initially. So it is an assault weapon. It is a weapon of war and I just want people to understand that distinction so that when it's thrown in their face, they can throw it back and say this was made to take on the AK47. You don't need it to shoot varmints. You know, right. it's it's shooting kids in our schools. Well, that was super helpful. I think, so based on what you're saying, you know, I, I'm not necessarily optimistic that Representative Byers' measure is going to be passed, but it is a rather creative way. And I like seeing this creativity because I often feel like we're on the receiving end of this creativity, you know, like what happened with the Texas abortion ban, for example. But based on what you're saying, it sounds like you don't believe this is a, a weapon that civilians should have and you'd probably be like supportive of anything to try to limit the like these types of weapons getting in the hands of civilians. Absolutely. And when you think about it, when you like going back to the discussion we had last week about the immunity law and how if we were to if we were to no longer make gun companies uh, immune from lawsuits, then it would cause gun companies to change the way they market weapons. It would cause them to take more responsibility and probably cause them to push for reforms that would make the the system more predictable, which is what we all want. Well, I think this could have a similar effect. If if you had a tax of a thousand percent on AR-15s, then firearm companies are going to sell fewer AR-15s, and then you know what they're going to want to do? They're going to say, "Hey, how about we get rid of the tax and we go to universal background checks?" Now they're not going to say, "Let's do an assault weapons ban," but like that, you you have to change the marketplace for this. You have to change the incentives. This worked with cigarettes to some degree, but again, it goes back to what was the other piece? We talked about this last week. It was the fact that you could sue the tobacco companies for being uh, negligent uh, and for marketing you know, directly to kids and that kind of thing. And so those two things combined, they made a huge... I mean, when my son sees someone smoking in a, like in a car next to us and we drive it, he's like, dad, that person's smoking. <laughs> that's that's not the world you and I grew up in. What that means to me, though, is there's reason for hope. There's a, there's a few changes to the law that can happen to where one day, you know, my grandkids, if they see somebody with a gun, they're going to be shocked. Right. Yeah, I hope so. So, Jason, as you know, I'm going to Italy in two days. And I went to go pack my athletic greens and I... I'm running out, so I'm in full panic mode. I realized that one of my my very young and spry staffers has been surreptitiously drinking my athletic greens, which is it's honestly, it's like a full-out war here now after that. It's a fireable offense. To be clear, Ariane, you're not getting fired over this, but this is like a major faux pas, and we're just going to get you your own. What is this stuff, you may be asking yourself? What you're getting with athletic Greens AG1 is 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. And that's how I start my day. I know it's how you start your day, Jason. I drink Athletic Greens AG1 before I leave my apartment, before I go on a walk to my office, and it's one of my favorite parts of my day. 
To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey, listeners, our network, Wonder Media Network, just released their first ever true crime podcast. It's called I Was Never There, and it was selected to premiere at the 2022 Tribeca Festival. It's the story of Marsha Mud Ferber, a 47-year-old mother of two who disappeared without a trace in 1988. 34 years later, Jamie and Karen Zellermeyer are going back to the land to figure out what happened. Join Jamie and Karen as they investigate the shocking disappearance of their close friend, Marsha, and trace her steps from suburban mom to radical hippie to drug-dealing bar owner. Using Marsha's disappearance as a jumping-off point, the mother-daughter duo take us on an intimate journey through the counterculture movements swirling through West Virginia in the 70s and 80s. So listen to the first three episodes of I Was Never There, wherever you get your podcast. Podcasts. Well, on this subject, let's go to an email from Amy, and I'm going to quote this for you. Your guest mentioned strong data showing the effectiveness of state-level gun safety policies, things like background checks and or red flag laws. And every time I see those data brought up on social media, a pro-gun person comes back with something like, quote, Clearly, these policies do nothing to stop gun violence. Just look at Chicago. Illinois has some of the most restrictive gun laws in the country, and Chicago has one of the highest murder rates, end quote. And the listener goes on to say, please help us parse the data and have a ready response to this argument that conflates state-level policies with city-level outcomes. This gets to some of the stuff I talked about either last week or the week before. You know, as I see this, there is this thing called the Iron Pipeline, which is really important for people to to understand, which is it's a metaphor for the way guns get to cities like Chicago and New York. And the, the way that they get to cities like Chicago and New York primarily is people do straw purchases. So they go to gun shows, you know, fairs, et cetera, where they just buy guns in bulk and they take advantage of that loophole and other state laws. And then they bring them to a place like New York. Now, I do think gun regulation in a place like New York does stop some of the stuff coming in, uh, but it's going to be limited because it's like having an umbrella with some holes in it. You know, It's going to stop some of the rain, but not all of it. Really, what you want to do is stop the rain. <laughs> and so for us, we don't have the ability to stop the rain absent federal policy. And that's what makes this debate so frustrating. And not only are they the Republicans holding up any attempt to, to try to solve this issue and, and obviously not doing anything at the state levels by and large to stop it. But now, you know, any day now, the Supreme Court is likely to rule that even our own state laws in New York need to be more permissive. So it's just, it's really frustrating all around. This is like what they do on everything, the Republicans, right? Is they, they sabotage a law and then they say there's no point in passing the law, right? I mean, they, they made... I mean, how many elections in a row did they win because they decimated Obamacare as it was going through the process and then spent a bunch of time telling you how Obamacare didn't work? Well, you know, we never found out whether actual Obamacare ever was really going to work the way it was supposed to because they didn't allow it to. And it's the same thing. It's look, Chicago has a, a, a huge gun violence problem despite Illinois having tighter gun laws. Well, yeah, because Indiana is right there. That's why, right? Uh, Kansas City has a terrible gun violence problem, even though we've tried, even though the state has stood in the way at every step to have actual gun laws at the at the city level. Well, yeah, because in the state of Missouri, you can 
pretty much get a, a gun, you know, I could I could have one in 30 minutes. Like I, I could leave here and come back with an AR-15 in 30 minutes. But that's what they do. They create a scenario where something is unworkable and then they tell you that it never could have worked. And you just got to you got to call them out on it. Yeah, I totally agree. Well, we'll keep monitoring this issue. It's thankfully not going away, at least in the public square. We got to keep it there. We got to keep talking about it. And, you know, I, I'm i of two minds just to close the book on this sort of incremental reform. I think you've got to get done whatever you can get done if it can save lives. At the same time, we need to be cognizant of the fact that even if we get to 60 votes on something very, very incremental, that uh, that will be used by Republicans to say, hey, we're sensible, we're getting things done, and they're going to oversell it. And so we just have to be careful about that. That's not a reason not to do it, but they're going to oversell it and say, look, we're sensible. And one thing I'm just very mindful of is that we don't, that we could both celebrate incremental change, like if we even get there, by the way, without selling it for more than it is. Something a little different for Road to the Midterms, we got a voicemail that we think is on point for the moment, so we're going to respond to that. Hi, guys. Uh, My name is Sarah. I live in Lawrence, Kansas, and I am calling because I would very much like for you guys to um, address on the podcast if you guys have any advice or tips or anything for um, what to say to your elected officials when you contact them and you know that they are on the opposite end of, like, everything from where you are. Um, Like I said, I live in Kansas, so both of my senators are very conservative, and I just got done listening to the most recent episode, um, the June 2nd one, and I would like to contact my senators and talk about supporting gun safety measures and whatnot, but I just, I have no idea what to say to a Roger Marshall or a Jerry Moran or a um, whoever my representative is now, because I just got moved into the first district. So yeah, if you guys could talk about that on the podcast a little bit. I would really um, like to hear what your thoughts are on that. Thank you. Bye. Jason, I have no idea. <laughs> so given that you spend more time in places that she describes, I, I'm going to defer to you on this. So I think it is important to call your members, um, but I think it's important to do more than call your members. I, I think, and this is, you know, I'm begging the question a little, but I think it is a matter of, yes, call them. But when you call them, let them know you know, I, this is why I've just joined mom's demand. This is why, you know, let them know about actions you're taking because yeah, like they're, they're not necessarily going to respond unless, unless they're overwhelmed with calls, which we want them to be, and they can't be unless you call. Um, so they're not going to in any way be responsive to that unless that happens, but also you have to tell them what you're doing, right? You have to say, this is, this has animated me. And I, I haven't been as engaged on this issue, but now I am. And here's what I'm doing because the people who you call will take notes on that. The other thing to keep in mind is that the measuring stick here is not exclusively changing their vote because this is a lot like when I was running for the state legislature, I remember I would see a, a house with my opponent's yard sign in it and I'd still go up and knock on the door. I didn't write it off. And I, I knew that like, I'm probably not going to get this vote, but if I show up and I'm friendly and I, and I just say, hey, I, I see that you, you know, you're voting for somebody else, that's totally fine. I wanted to let you know that I'm here and that you know, if I do win, I just wanted us to know each other. You know, I would do that because, one, I thought it was the right thing to do. But look, there was also an electoral strategy behind it, which is when they get a phone call from the other person or from like the Republican who's asking them to go knock on doors for them or to make phone calls, if they met me, they're less motivated to do that. 
And in the same way, if you call your senator, if you call your representative and enough people do that, yeah, they may not vote the right way, but they're not going to work as hard to beat our side. You're going to take some of the vigor out of their opposition. And, uh, and that stuff matters too. Well, that was a great answer. I have two shout outs uh, related to both Road to the Midterms and just Pledge to Persuade, which is shout out to two of our listeners who were on the ballot yesterday. J.D. Shulton, who I think our listeners will know because he's been on the podcast before, is officially the Democratic nominee for the Iowa State House District 1. So we're sending him some encouragement there. And then uh, a big shout out to Leslie Garrish from uh, Vermilion, South Dakota, who came up 14 votes short for the Northwest Ward Council. I just wanted to shout her out because Jason... I know you know as much as anybody that, you know, it could be tough the day after, but I just want to shout her out for for hustling. She's been a longtime listener and, you know, she, her husband and a lot of others in South Dakota who listen to this podcast have been fighting against some really difficult forces there. And it it, it seems hopeless for them, but I know that she's going to keep fighting. And so I just wanted to throw some love her way. Yeah, I'll second that. And I'll say that, well, congratulations to J.D., but also for Leslie, like, and for anybody who ran or was part of a campaign that, that didn't win over these last couple of weeks, like you're not expected to just turn right around and everything's supposed to be fine. Don't do that thing where you tell yourself, look, I lost an election. It wasn't like something really bad happened. No, you went through a thing. And, and when you go through a thing, it, you, you have to address that and give yourself a little space to grieve that loss. That's okay. And then when, when you're ready, which, you know, hopefully is soon, you get right back in the fight. Yeah, do what Jason did and show up to an arena summit and, and meet go. a quirky Indian guy from New York. Yeah, there you go. You know, your Could. life will never be the same. That's right. All right. You can uh, let us know what you've been doing on your pledge to persuade, whether you've had successes, failures. Um, you can give us your ideas for what we talked about uh, earlier in the show about you know like how we should be phrasing whatever the uh, opposite of this negative twist they put on wokeism is you can do that by emailing us m54 at wondermedianetwork.com you can leave us a voicemail 508-687-2589 so it's m54 at wondermedianetwork.com or 508-687-2589 i'm at jason kander on instagram and twitter ravi is at ravi m gupta on twitter and instagram our show is at majority 54 on twitter i'll do it one more time the launch team, if you want to read Invisible Storm, a soldier's memoir of politics and PTSD now, instead of waiting until July 5th, is jasoncander.com slash launch team. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbanayo. Theme music provided by Kevin Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.